Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. U.S. policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict may be in flux these days, with Israel's right-wing government and the White House seemingly squeezing as many benefits out of one another in what may be the final weeks of the Trump administration. The uncertainty surrounding the American presidential election, a potential Biden administration, or a second Trump term have left things up in the air. In this context, it's important to understand how other important actors are approaching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, namely the European Union. And in the last several months, several issues shaping EU policy toward Israel and the Palestinians have come to the fore. To help us better understand the European position on the conflict and some of these more recent developments, we're joined by Hugh Lovett. Hugh is a policy fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Since joining ECFR, he has focused extensively on EU policy toward the Middle East peace process, domestic Palestinian politics, and Israeli regional policy. Before that, he worked as a researcher for the International Crisis Group and as a Schumann Fellow in the European Parliament focusing on Middle East policy. He also worked for Aga Khan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations as an Arabic translator. Hugh, thanks for joining. Hi, thanks for having me. Just jumping right into what have been some of the more recent issues impacting European policy toward Israel and toward the Palestinians, two weeks ago we saw the European Union signal to the Palestinian Authority that it would not increase aid to the PA unless the Palestinians accepted tax revenue transfers from Israel. Why have the Palestinians been holding off on accepting these revenues? So it depends, depends how um, far back you want to go. I mean, this current specific crisis uh, started uh, in May when the uh, the Palestinian Authority, the senior leadership based in Ramallah, uh, announced that they would be refusing um, tax clearance revenues that are collected on its behalf by Israel as part of the Paris Protocol, as part of the uh, the Oslo Accords. And so that comes to about, I think, $190 million uh, per month. So about $2.2 billion, if my math is correct, uh, per year. And that's a lot of money when it comes to the, when it in terms of the, what that represents to the PA's budget. I think it's about like 60% of the, the PA's um, uh, public revenues per year. So it's a lot of money. And uh, they, um, Abbas and the senior leadership announced that they'd be refusing this. And they linked that um, to... At that time, the uh, the looming prospects that Israel might move forward with the uh, the formal annexation of West Bank territory attached to the the U.S. Uh, Trump uh, vision for peace uh, plan. So that's the the most immediate uh, reason for the crisis. If you go a bit further back, though, to the beginning of uh, 2019, uh, the senior leadership based in Ramallah took a, a similar decision uh, to refuse the, those uh, tax clearance revenues. That, as I mentioned, Israel collects on its behalf. But at the beginning of 2019, the reason for that uh, was because Israel had announced that it would be um, deducting from that amount, it would be deducting uh, the equivalent to what the Palestinians are contributing uh, to the families of what they call the families of prisoners and martyrs. Uh, so the Palestinians who are imprisoned by Israel or who are killed by Israel. And um, this relates so that Israel's decision relates to a law that was passed in the Knesset 
um, allowing for this to happen. Basically, the way that Israel presents this is as a pay for slay. So it's been accusing the Palestinians of basically of using this money to incite violence. Um, so I realize this can get a bit technical and and a bit down the rabbit hole, but I think it also does reflect, you know, how how thoroughly complex and, and technical this current situation is. And if you go even a bit further back to 2015, again, these tax clearance revenues uh, were also were, were frozen um, uh, by Israel at the time because of uh, Palestine's um, uh, bid in front of the International Criminal Court. Um, so, so I think what this says to try to, to make a bit more sense of it, if you will, you know, so, so these are very technical questions, but they've been um, used and politicized by both sides. So, as I said, in 2015, uh, Israel used it to, to try to punish um, the Palestinians over their ICC uh, initiative. Uh, and then Israel did it again in terms of, uh, you know, um, it, it, to express its, its concern and, and disdain for what it sees as Palestinian incitement for violence. And then again, now the Palestinians are using those same funds for their own political purposes, which is to, uh, to signal uh, their own displeasure towards uh, the Trump plan and annexation. And if I can finish on this very long-winded answer, I think there's a clear appreciation by, I would imagine, by the Israelis, the leadership in, in Ramallah, and the Europeans and, and others, that, that this is not a particularly satisfactory uh, state of affairs and that there needs to be a fix. I think the problem for both, specifically the Israelis and the, the Palestinians, is everyone's got so high up this tree that it's very difficult to find a way down. And for the Palestinians, it would have been, it was supposed to be the, the shelving of, uh, of annexation uh, over the summer that should have allowed for, um, for at least some sort of uh, compromise, um, but that's yet to really happen. So in the middle of all this is uh, obviously Europe, which is providing a, a majority of funding to the PA's budget at the moment. And so there's, a, as you said, a question mark about where we go next. And when it comes to funding for the Palestinian Authority, any impact on the budget has a really significant ripple effect for the Palestinian economy. I mean, considering the public sector, uh, the Palestinian government, the largest employer in the West Bank. Um, I want to address the EU position here. Uh, there was a lot made of this story that the EU was saying to the Palestinian Authority that they weren't going to provide additional aid to the Palestinians until they accepted the tax revenue transfers from Israel that we just discussed. Uh, there seemed to be some confusion uh, in the way that story was presented with some people framing it as uh, the EU saying they just wouldn't increase aid, some people framing it more as a suspension or cutting off of aid. So uh, can you get to the bottom of this? What's the real European position on that question? So I think that story and the way it was reported uh, made a, um, I, I think it was in, it, mostly incorrect uh, in terms of how it was presented. So, so firstly, you know, from a, an EU policy perspective and having spoken um, ahead of this podcast to make sure I was well informed, having spoken to a few European officials, you know, there is no threat to cut Palestinian funding. That's the, the first point. Um, Secondly, there is no, and there really hasn't been really any immediate prospect to increase that funding uh, going forward. Um, so, so we were kind of when it comes to EU funding levels, they always sort of slightly fluctuate uh, from from year to year. But 
but I think they're basically holding steady for for now. Um, but I think the 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 bigger issue is, you know, when you look at uh, funding levels uh, over the last decade or more, you know, across the board that that funding has been decreasing, and especially decreasing quite a bit um, in terms of uh, the money that comes from the Arab world, and money that comes uh, especially from the U.S., which, as we know, under the Trump administration, has cut its funding to the Palestinians. And so what this means for Europe now is that Europe finds itself, I would argue, in a moment of uh, a moment of moral and policy hazard. So it's finding itself uh, bearing an increasingly uh, high percentage of uh, international funding to the Palestinian Authority. So I calculated it like in 2013, for example, it was paying about 30 uh, percent of international contributions to the PA's budget. Uh, in 2017, that rose to, I think, about 52%. Um, and so I say it's a moral and policy hazard, because as you said, you know, in the at the beginning of your question, we we know what the, the, the repercussions and the consequences will be of a further decrease of funding to the PA in terms of um, stability, in terms of potential spillover into Israel or against Israelis that would come with a, you know, a drawdown either of security forces or a lack of or a, or a decreasing of salaries to security forces, but also to the large amount of Palestinians who uh, Palestinian families who rely on PA salaries and civil salaries um, for uh, for their livelihood. So, you know, that instability, I think, is a, is a big threat. And at the same time, another moment of policy moral hazard is absent any viable um, path towards a viable two-state solution or deoccupation and Palestinian statehood, the EU, and I would say the international donor community writ large, is now in a situation where essentially it's relieving Israel of the, the financial burden that comes with its continued occupation. So it's kind of a situation where the EU kind of knows that its, its donor policy is, I would argue, fundamentally flawed. Yet it also knows that if it tries to decrease that funding, it could end up provoking uh, an even worse situation. Um, and so I think this is something that European officials are aware of and are grappling with. So in other words, what you're saying is the Europeans have this issue where they see Israel as enforcing a de facto one state reality. And if there is one state between the river and the sea, then theoretically it should be Israel paying for all of its subjects and not the EU or other international donors subsidizing those expenses of people who are theoretically or not theoretically people who are in practice living under Israeli sovereignty. You know, I think that's the, the direction of travel. The EU's current position is that uh, Israeli uh, settlement actions are uh, or risk, I should say, risk entrenching a one-state reality of open-ended uh, occupation and unequal rights for Palestinians. That's kind of the current uh, EU jargon. Um, and so, but it's also, you know, there's a question about the viability of two states and the path forward. But even putting that to aside, there is a, a greater acknowledgement that the current situation on the ground is becoming ever, uh, ever deeply, ever more deeply entrenched 
uh, and the prospects for you know uh, meaningful negotiations are becoming you know more difficult to to identify and in this situation where there is no path forward then i think there is a a fundamental question about what is the logic of european funding you know what is it that europeans are trying to accomplish with this money beyond you know uh, beyond the narrow focus on humanitarian um, relief, which is also a bit of a separate issue, but when it comes specifically to to PA budgetary funding, for example, and that sort of linked to the bigger question that also Palestinians themselves will need to um, to grapple with, you know, in a situation in which a path towards two states and Palestinian statehood becomes blocked, what is the purpose of the Palestinian Authority itself, which many Palestinians increasingly see as basically a as a uh, a manager of Israel's uh, occupation and complicit in many ways in kind of what Israel is doing. Um, and the final point of that is, you know, we were talking about PA security forces. And I think many Palestinians feel that those PA security forces are, are increasingly there to provide security for Israel and Israeli settlers, more so than for Palestinians themselves. And that's an impression that has been longstanding. And in fact, we did a previous uh, episode on this podcast a couple of months ago, uh, digging deeper on that issue of how the Palestinian security forces are perceived by their neighbors uh, in the West Bank. Um, I want to come back one more time, though, to this tax transfer issue. If there were no planned increase in funding to the Palestinians, and if there were no threat to cut off aid to the Palestinians from the EU, uh, where did this story come from? And what does it mean in the context of the EU being the largest uh, external source of assistance to the Palestinians? So I, I couldn't hazard a guess in terms of how the story was reported and what was said or not said on, on the phone call. But but certainly the, there is no uh, change in EU policy one way or the other. Um, you know, and I, I said a bit earlier, you know, EU funding has remained pretty constant. You know, I would say, I would add a caveat that it has been slowly and gradually decreasing uh, over the past decade. But compared to the decreases that have happened, uh, you know, with Arab funding and U.S. funding, uh, it remains, you know, it's a much, much smaller and much slower decrease. Uh, and I think that's, you know, just to do with um, what is quite clearly uh, increasing apathy amongst and tiredness and fatigue amongst uh, international donors about and going back to what I was saying about what is the what are the returns on our money, but to quite try to be clearer, as far as I can see, there's not um, there's no decision has been taken at an EU level to to cut funding. Now, I'll add one more thing into the mix, is that you know during there are of course a lot of internal deliberations uh, within the EU amongst member states and European officials. One thing that has been suggested now and again. Uh, over the last year, you know, one idea has been to to cut funding to the PA in response. This was more within the context of uh, how to respond to uh, to the potential formal annexation of the West Bank by Israel. But one idea that was uh, suggested, as I said, was to cut the, these funding levels to the PA. That was never taken forward. And, you know, as far as I can see, it remains a very much a, a minority opinion. But I would caution, I would say, as I said, to go back to my point about the logic of European funding, 
the more that this current situation drags on, the more that the, the horizons for, for a two-state solution recede, the more these questions that we all have in our minds will become pertinent. And at some point, someone and, and, and European officials will need to grapple with it. So as I said, even if at the moment I can't see any imminent prospect of cutting funding to the PA, and actually, on the contrary, I think there's increasing desire at the moment amongst the EU to deepen further relations with the Palestinian Authority. But I think, you know, this is still very short termism. And I think at some point, you know, not tomorrow and not this year, but as things continue to degenerate on the ground, you know, this elephant in the room, which is the, the continuation of our funding will have to be uh, acknowledged at some point. And my final, final, final point on this is to say also, I think there's a question mark about, you know, not just in terms of what this money is supposed to do for, for the Palestinians, but how do how does the Israeli government, how do Israelis view this money? So, you know, as I said, I think this does a lot to, to relieve Israel of the, the, its financial burdens. But at the moment, the message that comes from the Israeli government and, you know, right-wing right wing, uh, Israeli civil society is very much to, to push for a, a cut or even elimination of this European funding. Um, you know, you just have to, you know, look at the news in terms of when, what's being reported um, uh, in Israeli media when it comes to European funding, but certainly that's quite often the target. And so, in, again, this goes back to this idea of policy and moral hazard. So Europe is contributing money to basically just prolong an, uh, an unsustainable, what would otherwise, otherwise be a more unsustainable occupation and situation. Uh, a lot of Palestinian civil society doesn't appreciate that because it's contributing towards securitization. A lot of Israeli civil society or right-wing civil society is also coming out against this because, you know, they feel that this is encouraging incitement and, and other other uh, negative policies. The same thing is playing out in Europe where both, you know, left and right-wing are attacking this funding. Um, there's cuts also to UNRWA and other services. So, you know, I don't think one could understate enough just how difficult this current funding model is to continue moving forward, even if at the moment Europe is doing its best to move forward and deflect any of the, these uh, challenges. And we should address some of the more recent developments that have impacted not only how the Israeli right-wing media or right-wing civil society activists have approached European funding and European-supported projects, but how the Israeli government has approached them. But before we do that, let's take a break for a message from our sponsor, Israel Policy Forum. Hi, I'm Dahlia Jude, the Strategic Initiatives Associate of IPF Atid, Israel Policy Forum's Young Professionals Network. IPF Atid has chapters across North America and works to advance support for a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict among the next generation of foreign policy professionals and American Jewish leaders. To learn more about how to get involved and keep up with our upcoming virtual events, visit www.israelpolicyforum.org slash Atid. So pivoting away from this issue of tax transfers to another uh, subject that is impacting European aid, one problem that has come up lately is an increase in Israeli demolitions of European-built structures in the occupied territories. Uh, in one recent incident, the 
uh, Israeli military demolished a Palestinian school outside of Ramallah that had been supported by EU funding and, of course, drew EU criticism for that. Can you elaborate on this topic and how does that contribute to de facto West Bank annexation or does it contribute to this impression of de facto West Bank annexation? So in terms of European funding to the Palestinians, you know, I think we should basically distinguish between two or three different um, strands. There's what we've been talking about until now, which is direct contributions to the Palestinian Authority's budget. And then the other strands is, you know, sort of humanitarian development, uh, sorry, humanitarian relief. And then a third one is kind of development projects, which is, um, you know, especially when we talk about Gaza, we talk a lot about EU funding and support to development stuff there, like desalination plants. But anyway, on the, the second strand, which is uh, humanitarian relief, you know, that's that's quite a, a large part of EU policy when it comes to trying to support uh, what it views as vulnerable uh, Palestinian communities, uh, especially in Area C of the West Bank, which, is, of course, it's the area that's most um, targeted by by Israeli policies in terms of settlement policies, the uh, demolishment of, uh, of Palestinian uh, homes and, and private property. And, you know, Israel's um, justification for this is to say, well, none of these structures uh, were built with Israeli, uh, yes, Israeli issued uh, permits. Now, Palestinians and the EU would say, firstly, that a lot that it's quite difficult to access these building permits. And the EU also has a policy not to seek um, Israeli permission when it comes to uh, supporting uh, humanitarian projects in those areas, uh, because it justifies that as part of international law. What projects fall under that umbrella of humanitarian projects? A lot of uh, what would be termed relief structures. So it can be, you know, these are, tend to be very, very small uh, and localized projects. So it can be, um, you know, helping fund uh, the construction of uh, water systems, uh, you know, schools, um, shelters, um, and these sorts of things. So it's very, very small and very localized. Uh, a good example would be Khan al-Ahmar, of course, um, which is near the sort of E1 area, uh, east of Jerusalem, which has also been you know, heavily um, uh, bracketed by, Israeli, by the Israeli settlement movement. And that remains standing to now, but the EU has also been, uh, been quite important in trying to, to support that, that one community. But, you know, that plays out across Area C in the southern Hebron Hills. So, so that's kind of what we're talking about. But because it's quite small and localized, when you actually look at the value of these structures and the money that the EU's put in and that's been demolished, um, so you know between 2014 and 2017, uh, my understanding is about one million dollars worth of uh, EU-funded property was demolished. When you set against, you know, in, in say in 2017, I think the EU contributed $269 million uh, towards the PA's budget. So $1 million is really not that much, of course, even if the, the impact on individual Palestinians is, of course, much greater. But I think the, the, so from the EU's point of view, it's not just about a question of money, really. It's ultimately a policy and a political question. And I think the issue is that, and, it, and you know, and I think a lot of Israelis may not feel like this or feel this, but nevertheless, you know, the EU has very much sought to prioritize and deepen its bilateral relations with Israel. 
of course, we've seen, you know, a few, we often see political ups and downs, but the, the foundations of that, of those bilateral relations remain very strong, and I would argue ever deepening. Um, and I think, so I say that because this, this desire to continue and to try to manage and maintain these relations, it's, it, it, it often contrasts with, you know, and I'm sorry to use this word, but basically the disdain that the Israeli government and Israeli authorities um, show towards, you know, these very small uh, European investments. Um, and of course, you know, Europe is in a position where it needs to push back and it needs to react, even if it's not much money. Um, and we've seen um, over the past few years, we've seen uh, political demarches uh, that have been, uh, that outside diplomatic demarches that have been um, issued at a local level by EU member states and the the EU's uh, what's called the European Union's External Action Service, which is the, the EU's own diplomatic corps. So anyway, they've all come together and they've issued um, diplomatic demarches against the Israeli government. And that, again, creates a lot of um, you know friction and anxiety between uh, at, the, at the political level. Um, so so basically what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's these small things from, from you know, when, when measured against the volume of trade, the volume of relations, the volume of aid uh, and funding that the EU give, gives to the Palestinians. It's there's really these small things that end up really clogging up a lot of the, the political machinery. Um, and, and of course, one needs to also acknowledge that, you know, no matter how, how small the money is, it's also seen as, I think, as a, as a major uh, threat by the settler movement. And again, we've seen a lot of right-wing um, NGOs who have specifically uh, um, uh, homed in and targeted the uh, targeted EU funding and uh, and its support for area C communities. And it's now basically in parts of Israeli media also, it's now referred to as, you know, uh, trying to support illegal Palestinian, Palestinian facts on the ground. So kind of, you know, reappropriating a lot of the language that was previously used against the settlements, that language has been reappropriated and now used to try to delegitimize Palestinian presence in these in these areas. And again, that just sort of feeds greater uh, frustration and friction at the at the political level. Right. It's an inversion of this turn of phrase that uh, our listeners may be familiar with hearing about Israeli facts on the ground or illegal Israeli construction in the West Bank. Um, that I want to hone in on this issue of how it impacts uh, the question of annexation. A lot was made of the threat of formal annexation. Now that has been uh, suspended, not canceled, but suspended under these normalization agreements Israel has initialed with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. How does this trend with uh, demolition of EU-built structures play into this phenomenon of uh, de facto annexation? And also, what accounts for the increase? I mean, Israel has controlled the West Bank for over half a century, but according to one source, demolitions of EU-built structures in that area increased uh, 90% in 2019 from 2018. Uh, so that's a pretty sharp spike just in the last and uh, in, in the more recent period. So in terms of the first part of your question about how does does this contribute towards de facto or creeping annexation? You know, a lot of these areas uh, in er these Palestinian communities in Area C are located um, 
in areas that are important to the expansion of Israeli settlements. So again, if you look at the, on the map at where Khan al-Ahmar is, uh, is located, for example, that's quite a, you know, a strategically important location for the expansion of the E1 block and Mali Adumim block. Um, and likewise, uh, you know, lots of areas in Area C. So I think in many ways, in terms of what the EU's funding is doing, which is one of the reasons, or the main reason, I would argue why the why right-wing organizations have so much uh, pushed back or tried to push back against it, is because European funding is not only providing humanitarian relief, it's helping Palestinians remain uh, steadfast on the ground uh, in these Area C communities, and, and therefore, you know, making it more difficult to to expand these settlements and settlement construction. Um, and, I, and I should add, you know, when I said strategically sensitive areas to the settlements, they're also strategically sensitive areas to the future of the two-state solution. Um, so, you know, in terms of when one's looking at, at, at the expansion of these settlements uh, in these areas, you know, whether it's Kivat Khamatos, whether it's Maliadoumim, Hahoma, and these sorts of areas, you know, if, if and when Israel builds in them, which, is, which it has often um, threatened to do, that would basically um, sever East Jerusalem from uh, it, from the Palestinian West Bank hinterland and make um, a, a resolution, make a two-state solution in line with international agreed parameters much more difficult because it would, you know, it would, uh, it would sever East Jerusalem. So, so that's answering part of your uh, your question on de facto annexation. I hope. Now, in terms of why why there's been an increase. Uh, in the targeting of these EU-funded structures. It's difficult, difficult for me to say without actually seeing more data into, and, and you know, talking to, to Israeli officials themselves. But I would say there is obviously a mood music um, to a lot of what's happening, and we've talked a bit about that. So we have seen uh, over the past few years, you know, as we were talking about, we've seen uh, a greater... Uh, value and focus placed on pushing Palestinians out of area C locations and uh, asserting de facto Israeli sovereignty over these areas. And again, you know, you can reference the numerous amount of of reports and articles that have been written by members of the settler movement and right-wing Israeli uh, politicians in terms of how they relate now to area C, which is basically to say, well, this has always been Part of you know this is the Oslo Accords have given us uh, every right over Area C and it's basically now part of Israel. Um, and so, if you take that point of view, you know the boogeyman in this therefore becomes the EU because the EU is one of the the few actors who is who are not only providing substantial amounts of money uh, to these structures, but are also explicitly linking their funding to a, a semblance of a political goal, which is, as I said, trying to, to maintain Palestinian political and social and physical presence uh, in these areas. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of mood music. And then I wouldn't discount that also sometimes it's political signaling in terms of when some things happen. One can imagine that that there may be an intent to, to signal is, Israeli displeasure uh, towards the EU, and sometimes you know these demolitions, demolishments happen um, at times when there's either friction in, in the bilateral relations, or you know there 
there is always seems a, like there is always a political context when that happens. Between the apparent threat that these demolitions pose to the viability of a two-state solution and, uh, you know, just the impact that they have on the lives of Palestinians on the ground and what you spoke about, what seems to be lost in communication between the EU and Israel, the EU trying to deepen its relations with Israel, but the Israeli right, which is in power, perceiving or presenting the EU as hostile how does all of this impact uh, the EU's policy of differentiation, uh, which I know you've written extensively about uh, differentiation between uh, what we would consider Israel proper in the European Union's relations with Israel and settlements and the occupied territories? So I think it's no secret that this differentiation policy has been uh, another source of um, political friction between the two sides and displeasure. Um, from the Israeli government and the settler movement. Um, and I think it's just worth explaining in a few sentences what this is and and what it's not. And so this differentiation policy is very much the, or at least this is how I present it and this is what I believe. And you know, is, some Israeli uh, right-wingers will put a completely different explanation to this. But, but as far as I'm concerned, it is nothing more than the correct implementation of the EU's own domestic positions and laws, and the correct implementation of international law, by which third states and, and the EU have an obligation of non-recognition towards the Israeli settlements, and have an obligation to ensure that they are not uh, providing any sustenance or benefits to internationally unlawful actions, such as those embodied by the settlements. So put more simply, what that means is the EU has a, a legal requirement to ensure that its bilateral relations with Israel stop at the 1967 borders. So, so its relations with Israel can only be within the borders of the Israel that it, and I say most of the international community, recognize. Um, and so what that means you know, in practice is, uh, in theory, it's all that the myriad of bilateral agreements that exist between the EU and European member states, these states and all these governments need to ensure that those agreements have um, have an explicit territorial clause that that guarantees that their territorial scope um, stops at the 67 borders. And this is not just a European obsession or obligation. In theory, this is an obligation that any third state or every third state has including the US and, you know, actually some of the, the, the earlier instances of differentiation clauses uh, are, in, are to be found in US agreements. Um, you know, there's the um, the US, I think it's BIRD agreement. So it's, um, you know, the, the, the scientific cooperation agreements from, I think, the late 70s, 1978, I may be, may be wrong, but that has a differentiation clause in it. So, so it's not just a, a European phenomenon, and it was um, enshrined in uh, UN resolution two th UN Security Council resolution two three three four from December two thousand sixteen, which is another bet noir, uh, another boogeyman for for the Israeli right. So that's what it is, um, you know. And Israel will say, well, no, this is sanctions and this is economic warfare, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, hence, a lot of the a lot of the the political tension that this has given rise to. But if I can end on this point by saying also, and I think this is another reason why why it has caused so much political consternation uh, in some quarters, is that it does have a normative effect, because in many ways it's it's one of the few 
instances in which the international community or first date provide or any meaningful challenge to what has been quite a, um, a focused and enduring effort by the settler movement to legitimize the settlements at home and abroad and integrate them more fully into Israel's social economic architecture. So differentiation in many ways kind of pushes back um, against this, this alternative trend. Hence why I think it's quite important while still acknowledging that it's, it's only one small step uh, and not a silver bullet in terms of you know, creating a two-state solution. There's then this question of, is differentiation sustainable in an era of increased de facto annexation, if not formal annexation? So the easy answer is to say, um, we don't have any choice. It's a legal requirement. And, and for the EU, the EU, I mean, you know, gets criticized a lot, um, including by myself. But, you know, it it is above all a trading community. And as the UK is experiencing now in its Brexit negotiations, you know, EU regulations and its regu regulatory power is, is actually quite substantial. And it also, in many ways, ties the EU's hands, because even if European politicians would like to do otherwise, they are constrained by their own legal positions. Um, now, kind of answering more fully your, your question, there is clearly going to be a or is clearly a scenario in which the, the EU's legal requirement to differentiate between Israel and the settlements and exclude the settlements from its bilateral relations, uh, but up against Israel's own determination to include those settlements uh, within its own social economic fabric and within its bilateral relations. And in some instances, especially of this formal annexation, where these settlements are fully integrated into Israel's legislative uh, fabric, the Israeli government may not be allowed to actually discriminate between Israel and the settlements. Israel will be prohibited to do that by its own laws. And so therefore, you can imagine a scenario which becomes, you know, quite an impasse. We've seen it a bit play out in some very specific uh, areas, which are often talked about, such as the EU-Israel Research and Development Agreement uh, Horizon 2020, where the EU held firm to its positions, you know, about excluding uh, settlement entities and activities from its funding uh, grants. The Israeli government refused to, to sign up to that based on its own ideological uh, uh, positions. But at some point, the Israeli government had to do a U-turn, and the EU was very happy to accommodate this U-turn and, and to dress up very nicely. But ultimately, when the Israeli government, and more importantly, the, the research and and development, academic and scientific community realized they'd be losing out to this um, to this funding and to the more importantly to the to the the research and development networks that Europe offers. There was enough and sufficient pressure on the Israeli government on Netanyahu to 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 make this U-turn and to actually sign up to Europe's conditions. That's just one example, and and uh, but one can imagine you know, how that would play out uh, across. The fullness of the bilateral relations, which is not just research, research and development, but uh, you know, financial, social security, taxation. You know, the, the, it can be, it could potentially be very problematic. Um, so, you know, I don't say that as a threat to Israel, of course, but I think it's something that merits some attention, 
and some understanding that that these positions do not stem from, as has been argued by Israeli politicians, including some centre-left politicians and members of the Labour Party. You know, this is not about European anti-Semitism or European economic terrorism, that there is actually a rationale that maybe you don't agree with, but there is a well-founded legal rationale at play in Europe and a normative clash in which, you know, in which Europe has been very clear that it cannot accept the settlements and it cannot accept the legitimacy. And so in many ways, differentiation is just a manifestation and one of the few manifestations of what Europe has been warning against um, for, for, for decades. Switching from this to a lighter topic, the American presidential election, um, it's not just, of course, impacting the United States, but will have a follow on effects for all of our partners and allies throughout the world, including European countries. Um, you know, the Trump administration, and we'll get into this uh, shortly also, but, you know, it's no secret that the Trump administration has broken with a lot of the norms and, and conventional policies that were generally shared between the United States and the EU. So what do European policymakers then think about any opportunities regarding Israel and Palestine under a potential Biden administration should Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, win the election in November? So it's another open secret that um, uh, most, not all, but most European governments would be probably quite relieved by um, the arrival of a, of a new administration. Um, I think when, when it comes specifically to Israel-Palestine, I think this will encourage Europe to kind of go back to what it's always been doing and it prefers to do, which is to basically cheerlead U.S. efforts. Um, and many ways, you know, what Europe, I would argue European policy is cyclical. So it cheerleads American efforts. When these collapse, it steps in and tries to manage the situation until another U.S. Uh, presidential effort. And then when that fails, it, ma- it steps in to manage again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in many ways, this has just been a very, a very long, protracted phase of, of crisis management that the EU has been undertaking, both to, you know, to try to, to preserve the two-state solution based on international parameters, to preserve this Oslo paradigm, uh, and to contain any, any um, uh, notable instances of instability on the ground. So when Biden arrives, as I said, I think there will be a, a sigh of relief. Um, I, listeners will be much more cognizant than, than me about in terms of where Biden administration may or may not go. You know, my own view is Biden administration may, will not um, prioritize the SMEP issue uh, immediately um, because as many other files to deal with. And so I think, you know, in that situation, there will be, a, I think, a moment where Europe will still need to step in and step up. Uh, at least pending another Bi- uh, Biden engagement further down the line. Uh, and so the ideal answer is to say, well, you know, what is the division of labor between the U- between a Biden administration and, a, and, a, and, and the EU on this file? What is it that the EU can and should be doing to try to, um, to pave the way for a future U.S. engagement? But I would also say that in my message to Europeans is we should be very mindful of some of the lessons that were learned under the Trump administration, which is actually there is a need, and I would say actually also a value to having greater European policy autonomy 
It doesn't mean, of course, clashing with the Biden administration, far from it. But it does mean, I think, that Europe should be more prepared and more willing and more able to act as its own political actor, rather than constantly looking uh, to Washington for, for guidance. That may be something unpopular to say on this podcast, but I do think, you know, ultimately that's something that serves everyone uh, much better. So just to be clear, from your perspective, if Biden were to win and the Europeans were to go back to uh, what you framed as their uh, traditional policy of kind of just following the U.S. lead on this issue, that wouldn't necessarily be a positive development reverting to uh, the old approach. Well, so my own point of view is no, because my own point of view is I think the the paradigm in which we've been in um, for the last 27 years since the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993, that, that paradigm is seriously broken. I think it's clear that paradigm cannot deliver peace. I think it's also clear that paradigm cannot n- effectively manage the conflict and avoid a deterioration on the ground. Like when you look at the trends, you know, the one positive trend is Israelis have had reasonably good security with you know, some notable exceptions. But I think all the other trends are extremely negative. And what, what I would argue Oslo has been doing is to very much reinforce a lot of these, uh, these negative uh, trends on the ground that are making uh, a two-state solution impossible and pushing peace uh, further away. So to me, the conclusion is you need a new way forward. You need a, a new approach that can better uh, reflect uh, and, and grapple with the, the reality as it is on the ground, which, in my view, is a reality of entrenching occupation and unequal rights that has all the hallmarks of apartheid. And I realize this is very you know, emotive imagery to use, but this is stuff that we've been warning about for, for decades. You know, the Israeli government in 1967, its cabinet discussions, um, warned about the emergence of such a situation of a one-state reality and what that implication would be for Israel. You know, we had six Mossad directors have warned about it, one Shimnet director, two Israeli prime ministers. I think that the maybe maybe the other way around. I think it was six Shin Bet directors and, and more than one Mossad director. But I, I take your point. Yes. So um, anyway, and a lot of a lot of consternation and, and alarm and concern. And this was always seen as something that was a, a hypothetical scenario. But I would argue this is the scenario that is being entrenched on the ground. And you know, this is you know not to to castigate Israel, but it's a realistic assessment about where things are going and the challenges that this will present, you know, not just to Palestinians, to Israel, in terms of Israel's continuation as a democratic and Jewish majority state, but also a recognition of the challenges that this unfolding trajectory will have on bilateral relations uh, with the international community, even if at the moment, you know, I argue there's a false sense of calm because of you know, European policy, US politics and regional policy. But I don't think, you know, I think that's in many ways doing a disservice to Israelis because it's it's masking actually what I view to be a much more problematic long term trajectory at, at a local level. So that was a bit of a, a circle. But to, to come back to, to what you're saying, you know, so so the risk of a Biden administration for, from the European perspective is that it actually reinforces this this sense of this false sense of calm and sustainability, and that we sort of ease back into what we've been trying and failing to do uh, over the past two decades. 
Do you get the sense that this, uh, what you just shared, which is your personal assessment of the situation is where other European policymakers are at yet, or they're still in a position where they see the optimal route to be going back to the older policy? I think, um, no, that the pol- that the analysis is shared amongst many in confidential and private discussions that are happening and confidential reports that are being issued. You know, this this reality is being painted. The word apartheid is not necessarily being used, but the, the EU jargon of, you know, entrenching one state reality of unequal rights and continued occupation, to me, that's the, 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 de- that's the, the definition, basically, of apartheid. Um, so these these discussions are happening. I think the the debate about the implications of de jure annexation gave those discussions a bit of um, a bit of further impulse. We've seen, um, you know, the uh, the EU special representative to the Middle East peace process, Susanna Turstall, when she addressed the European Parliament um, over the summer. You know, she said basically. If two states is no longer possible, the only other alternative will be uh, equal rights in one state, in a democratic state. And so I don't think that the EU is going to swing behind one state as its preferred outcome, nor do I think it should. But I think we, we could find ourselves in a situation where, you know, not the EU as a whole, because there's obviously differences of opinion amongst, you know, especially Eastern member states. Um, but I do think that we will be in a situation where where there is greater reflection and there is greater acknowledgement about what will have to be uh, alternative outcomes if a two-state is no longer possible, if you, you're, you're left with basically a one-state and you have to decide whether that's a one-state of inequality or equality. And I realize these are, these are difficult discussions and, and, and very charged and emotive discussions, but I do think that's where we're going at and that's what I see coming through um, in my conversations with European policy officials. And what I would also say on this is that while this analysis and you know these discussions are happening, the EU remains very much a status quo actor or an enforcer of the status quo. Now, one could say status quo doesn't really apply and doesn't really exist on the ground, but I probably mean more status quo in terms of the Oslo paradigm and the way we've been doing business for the last 20 years. You know, for a variety of reasons, the EU has very much wedded itself to that paradigm. So even if there is an acknowledgement that that paradigm is is broken and uh, and perhaps even doing more harm than good, and there's an acknowledgement of where we're kind of slowly heading, there is nonetheless a deep reluctance to significantly rethink that at this point in time uh, because of, as I alluded to, the, the difficulties of internal consensus making, but also, you know, this very normal political instinct, which is to push back deeply complicated political discussions for uh, future successes. You know, if your your term in, term in office is four years, you know, it's much easier just to, to push back these big discussions and just focus on what's more popular and what's easier to do, which is deepening relations with both sides. So it's a situation where I think short-termism, you know, continues to be prioritized over any any more fundamental reconfiguration of EU policy that, although it'd be more difficult in the short term, I would argue would um, provide better benefits over the long term for everyone. To close this all out, we've been discussing the past couple of minutes 
what this looks like with a potential Biden administration, but there's also the possibility that President Trump wins re-election in two weeks. Um, and so, you know, in the past four years, the U.S. and EU have distanced quite a bit on the question of Israel and Palestine, and we've discussed this uh, before on this episode, but just to refresh, I mean, there's the uh, the Trump administration making annexation official U.S. foreign policy through the Trump uh, the Trump Peace to Prosperity Plan. Uh, just earlier today, we heard from U.S. Ambassador David Friedman saying that the American position is that the settlements should never be evacuated. Any settlements. Uh, Trump also relocated the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, recognized the city as Israel's capital, and as you pointed out before. Uh, complete cutoff of aid to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as aid to UNRWA. So these are all things that, you know, the EU and the United States are landing on separate sides of the fault line here. So that's all been the past four years. How would the EU deal with another four years of this kind of policy? I think certainly if we have another four years with President Trump, that will uh, encourage some of the reflections that have been ongoing within Europe uh, as a response to American policies and American unilateralism on this file, but other files. And so I think it will um, encourage greater appetite amongst European countries to pursue a more um, independent foreign policy and to be more willing, uh, not out of desire, but out of necessity to to push back against against American policy, you know, clearly JCPOA is the first thing that comes to my mind, the Iran nuclear agreement, but uh, and many other uh, areas in foreign policy, but that will clearly also play out on on Israel Palestine, and to be somewhat provocative and counterintuitive, you know, four more years of Trump would perhaps encourage Europe to better appreciate the realities as they are on the ground that I been talking about and the trajectory in which the conflict is going, a trajectory which, I mean, to be at the risk of being very negative, you know, I think absent any um, significant policy we think by the US and Europe, this trajectory, whether it's a, a Biden administration or Trump administration, remains broadly speaking the same, which is, you know, going towards this one state of inequality that I talked about. Um, obviously, I appreciate there's a lot of nuances and differences. But I think that trajectory remains the same. I think what would perhaps be different is under the Trump administration, Europe would be more willing to acknowledge and to push back against that, um, as opposed to, as I said, under a, a Biden administration, where it, that would encourage uh, the EU trying to revert to the illusion of a status quo ante. Clearly, there's a lot to think about on this issue and a lot of areas where the U.S. and EU policy could come together on this and a lot of areas for potential divergence. And with the election just two weeks away, less than two weeks away now here in the United States, it will be interesting uh, to see how things shake out and important to understand uh, where things are going, both for the U.S. and for our European partners on this question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So thank you, Hugh, for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your insights and expertise on this. My pleasure. Thanks, for, thanks again for having me. And to our listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod. Mm-hmm.